Welcome to Square Mile Conversations, a podcast series where you get to hear Square Mile stars speak for themselves. For our next instalment, legendary actor and newly minted director David Oyelowo is interviewed by the recently BAFTA-nominated Malachi Kirby. It's a fascinating conversation encompassing faith, identity, and the power and possibilities of art, exploring the places we've come from and the places we've yet to reach. Cool. So how are you doing, man? Yeah, I'm, I am well. I am well. Um, I, am, I am here in uh, London uh, by the Young Vic. Um, okay. I'm, I'm doing a film here at the moment. Um, it's such a weird way to be in London because you can't see anyone. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, um, I'm, I'm, I'm either in this apartment or on the set. So, yeah, crazy okay. thing. I'm right in thinking you live in LA, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's so, that's that's home. Um, but yeah, I've been here just over a month now, so it's it's okay. nice to have an. Ex- I always take an excuse to be in London or be in the UK when a good project comes along. But having lived here for most of my life, to be here and not be able to see anyone is so weird. Yeah. Um, so anyway, there you go. Okay. I mean, as much genuinely as I'm tired of talking about COVID, um, yes. I'm genuinely interested, like, how is it very different in America at the moment in terms of that situation? Um, yes and no. I mean, you know, for, for me, living, living in LA, there's just a, there's more space where I live. And, you know, we're blessed with a, with a home that has a, a decent amount of land around it. So even though it's been weird to just be at home a lot of the time, we haven't felt hemmed in. Um, and my wife and I, you know, we have four kids, we have three dogs, we have chickens, we have a parrot, we have... You, know, you got, you got like, land. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's a lot going on. So, um, but it's, it's, um, it's funny, it's being here, being in a smaller apartment that I can now sort of appreciate how some people must just be climbing up the walls. To be in a smaller space with kids doing Zoom school and all of that must be crazy. So it, it, it's, it's similar in terms of lockdown, but I will say nice weather helps, a bit of space helps, it takes the edge off it. And it's actually been a it's been a quite creative time because I I don't know if you know Malachi, but my wife and I run our own production company. And, um, you know, when, when, when I'm busy shooting one of the things, because our company is still relatively small, but when I'm shooting certain projects suffer a bit because of course you're focusing on the, the task at hand, but because there's been a bit more time to be at home, projects that I really love, we've sort of had time to develop um, a bit more and get them off the ground. So that's actually been a, it's been a creative time as well. Been a time for family, been a time to, to create and a time to reflect, kind of just reprioritize things. So, you know, that's, that's been my, my COVID, a, a, time, a time to reflect. Okay, so I'm glad you brought it up actually, because um, I just watched your film yesterday. Well, I watched it for the second time yesterday. Oh. Um, the Waterman. Um, which I'm right in saying is the first film you've directed. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay, congratulations, by the way. Um, Thank you. I thought it was beautiful. Um, but I have a question before I really get into that. Just in terms of the company, you're a Saxon. Mm. Um, so where did the name come from, first of all? 
Yeah, Yoruba Saxon, you know, I'm uh, f- uh, from the Yoruba tribe in Nigeria, uh, from Western Nigeria. It's funny, actually, because my mom was Igbo and my dad Yoruba, but, you know, and being from a, a traditional Nigerian family, you, you inherit your father's tribe. So theoretically, mm-hmm. I'm Yoruba, even though I'm both in, in okay. reality. Um, and uh, my my wife is Anglo-Saxon, so uh, that's the, uh, the, the where the name Yoruba Saxon comes from. Um, okay. And uh, and it, philosophically, you know, what we want to do with our films is to exhibit how cultures, though beautiful in their specificity, there is commonality in all of humanity. Um, and so we're trying to, with the projects we do, bring people together um, um, just by showing uh, and celebrating the, like I say, the specificity of different cultures, but to show how there is overlap as well. Okay, cool. And um, one of the things that I noticed that was beautiful about the film was, I mean, I don't know, I'm assuming this is intentional. I have to, it surely has to be in terms of the values of the film. Hmm. They really stuck out to me because I think it's so rare to see. Um, so in terms of like it being very family orientated and in terms of the love that was in there, the hope that was in there, um, the intelligence of a young African-American, like all of those things just kind of stood out to me in the most beautiful way. And um, I just wondered if that's something that is part of what you want to do with the company, you know, in terms of all of the projects that you do, or if it was just this film. Yeah, it's beautiful that you've highlighted it. And the, 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 the fact that you've highlighted it illustrates a really good point, which is that you know, I, I know you as a, as a man. I know your integrity. I know your kindness. I know what you exude in terms of the, the light you exude. That is quite, you, you know, that is something that I see a lot in the people I interface with because that's who I gravitate towards. But those values you just talked about there, we we unfortunately rarely see on film when it comes to people who look like you and I. But that's my life. I was raised in a home like that. I, I like to think I'm raising my kids in a home like that. It's not unusual for me but it's it's unusual on screen. And so the answer to your question is, yes, that's something I, I want in my work, but only because that's my reality. Um, yeah. That's my um, truth. Um, and, uh, you know, I grew up loving films like E.T. and The Goonies and Gremlins, you know, a lot of those Amblin type movies. Um, and, you know, I loved the, 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 the values that were often espoused in those films, whether it be friendship or fighting for your family or just the joy of adventure, um, seeing kids be free, but very rarely got to see myself represented in those films. And so, you know, I'm just trying to create a different world for my children, for your children, in terms of that being normalized, that, you know, they, they get to see themselves in, in the context of not just race, but love and family and, you know, uh, being concerned for your mother who's ill and how can you save her and, 
you know, your dad who you're not really getting along, but it doesn't mean you don't love each other. It's just that you're human beings. Do you know what I mean? So it's, mm-hmm. it's not like a, a big, you know, the dad is beating up his son and all this kind of stuff. It's just like that's family. And then you find your way back to each other. Those are things that I think anyone and everyone can, can relate to. And, and that's, you know, the life that, that, that I lead. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's interesting you said that in terms of um, this child having both his parents present. You know, usually if I see a film, most of the time, especially with people that look like us, um, usually it's either the mum that's present only or neither parents, or it's the other extreme, which is that both parents are present and it's really happy families. So it was really interesting to see this film and see the nuances of, okay, both parents are present, but you know, it's not all easy going, you know, just because they're both there doesn't mean that, you know, this kid doesn't have his challenges and his issues, you know, and, and his brokenness even. Um, but seeing in such a short space of time, um, but in a very sincere way, that journey of seeing that brokenness and also seeing healing was so beautiful to watch. Mm. Um, and I was just wondering as well, um, so you didn't write this, but you produced mm. it, you directed it, you acted in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm asking this question, one, just because I'm interested to know how that experience is, was for you doing it, but also for anyone aspiring to do something similar. Um, was there anything that you found particularly challenging about that? Was it, you know, was it all smooth going? How was that for you? <laughs> um, no, it wasn't, it wasn't all smooth going, but it's not, I'm not saying that because it was tough. It's just, mm. it's a big thing to take on. Mm. There's, no, there's no getting away from it. And the truth is, I had always known that I wanted to direct at some point, but this was not a film that I was originally intending to direct. Um, you know, at my company, you know, we, we, have, um, we have a philosophy around, there, there are two things we really want to put out into the world. Something we call live action Pixar, which is, you know, I love Pixar movies. I love Up, I love The Incredibles. But, you know, there is something about animated movies that, that, that instantaneously appeal to kids. But when you have kids, you find yourself, oh gosh, I've got to watch this, you know, animated movie over and over again. But Pixar do this brilliant thing where they engage adults whilst also engaging the kids. And very rarely do you have those same qualities in contemporary film. I think Spielberg did it brilliantly back in the day. J.J. Abrams has done it to a certain degree as well, but there are very few young filmmakers, new filmmakers who gravitate towards four quadrant movies where the whole family can sit down and watch a film. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I'm, and I mean films that are not Marvel or Star Wars or, you know, big Disney movies, films that can be made at a smaller budget. They have some fantasy to them. They have some adventure, but they also deal with real stuff. So live action Pixar is one of the things we want to do. And then the other thing we want to do is to contextualize black life for a global audience, you know, so to make sure that we are always having layered characterizations um, uh, uh, the perspective is from someone who maybe in mainstream doesn't normally get to tell the story both in front of and behind the camera. And so we want to just keep on creating a world where different kinds of people are getting to tell the story. So we, um, I gave this remit to my agents. I said, I'm looking for something in the vein of an ET or something like that. And then they brought me this film 
The Waterman, which was on the blacklist, uh, which for people who don't know is a uh, 100 scripts are selected each year by an organization called The Blacklist and they are basically picked by the, the Hollywood industry as the best unmade screenplays of that year. And they're put on a database so that Hollywood can go, okay, I want that one, I want that one, I want that one, and a lot of them have gone on to be produced. So this film was on that on that platform as created by a wonderful guy called Franklin Leonard. Um, and so I, I managed to, 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 to snag it after a big competition from other studios. I really managed to convince Emma Nadell, who wrote the script, that I, you know, I had a vision for it. And then with time, we had a director um, who was going to direct it, but he, he went off to do a, a, a bigger film that has never got made, by the way, just saying. Okay. Um, and... Um, and and we were we 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 had found Lonnie Chavis, who's phenomenal young kid who plays um, Gunner in the film, the lead role. Uh, and we had a start date. We had the money to go make it. And anyone who knows about making movies, if you have your star, you have a start date, and you have the money, you figure out how to go. And and so it was actually the the writer, Emma Nadell, who turned to me and said, I think you should direct this, um, because she knew I had those aspirations. We'd been developing it together for about four years, and so I suddenly found myself in the director's chair. And, um, you know, it took me a while to, you know, take a deep breath and do it, but man, I loved it. I, I really loved it, because I love storytelling. You know, one of the reasons I have a company is, I know the day will come when maybe people will be less interested in seeing me in front of the screen, but I always want the opportunity to tell stories. I admire folks like George Clooney and Mark Wahlberg and uh, you know Kenneth Branagh who are hyphenates, who you know they they produce, they direct, they write, they they act, but no one is going to ever be able to take their toys away from them in terms of creating. And so that was the thing I just loved about this process is being in every tentacle of the storytelling process when it came to, 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 to making a film. Okay. Um, and just one thing that just came out to me as you were speaking, um, I just suddenly considered if you were directing a film, it's a question I've always wondered, how, you know, how do you get notes? Do you give yourself notes that you like, <laughs> how does that dynamic work? It's a great question. And it's one of the things I was most nervous about. Um, so what I did is I contacted a few friends of mine who are actors who also directed. So I spoke to Nate Parker, who, who made Birth of a Nation uh, brilliantly, my friend Joel um, Edgerton as well, who did films like The Gift and Boy Erased. And I spoke to Mel Gibson as well, who I think better than anyone living, you know, how you are both the star and director of Braveheart. I don't even know how you do that. Um, so I, I spoke to all of these guys and Joel, Joel Edgerton gave me the best advice in relation to your question there. He said, what you, one of the first things you want to do is make sure you're not the person saying action and cut because mm -hmm. that's a bit too schizophrenic, especially if you're in the scene. So have your first assistant director be that person. Mm -hmm. So everyone knows that there is an external voice to you who says action and cut. So that was first. And then he said, if you're in a scene, no matter what, 
when when cut has been called leave the scene go and look at the monitor even if you're pretending to review the footage then come back and give your directions to the other director the other actors in the scene because what you never want is for the actor you're acting opposite to think that you're you're doing a scene with them and you are observing them as opposed to being in the scene with them yeah because it's going to start affecting the performance where they're going mm. am i acting with david the director or the character david's playing mm -hmm. and that was huge for me because there is no way i wouldn't have made that mistake i totally would have been in a scene with rosario dawson cut would have been called and i go so let's go again um <laughs> and that's just too weird that's yeah. just too, too weird the other thing i did is i had my wife on set with me for at least the first two weeks of the shoot just to call me out on my BS if I was so preoccupied with other things, because as you well know, as an actor yourself, the director is being asked a hundred questions an hour, you know, by the costume designer, by the production designer, by the first AD, by actors, by catering. I mean, it's just constant. Um, and if you're producing the film as well, as I, I was, that, that's twofold. So I was nervous that I would be distracted from giving a good performance. So I had my wife there who knows me better than anyone because she would be able to know if I was in the pocket or not. And so she would just give me a little thumbs up or a little sideways or a little, you know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know or a thumbs down. Um, you know, and, but, but, but the, look, you need it. You need yeah, it yeah. in your life. It's real life. Yeah. Um, and, but within about two weeks, what I realized is I, thankfully, cause I've been blessed with the fair few opportunities as a, as an actor on screen, you have a muscle memory of what a good performance feels like. And so I could, I could relax and go, actually, weirdly enough, that, 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 I'm resisting saying the easiest, but certainly the most comfortable part of directing this film for me was the acting, because that I know. I know how to do, I know what it should feel like. It was all the other stuff. Um, but the other great piece of advice I got, and it's you know fairly well known, and it's kind of common sense, is hire people better than you. Hire people who are brilliant at what they mm -hmm. do, especially if it's the first time you're, you're stepping out as a director and give them your vision in a succinct and clear way and then get out of the way. You know, let them do their job, let them elevate your ideas, elevate the film, take ownership of your vision. And you know, that, that was the greatest joy for me was to watch phenomenal artisans make me look good. Mm -hmm. um, you know, cause I've definitely been on sets where there are directors who either through their own insecurity or whatever, they micromanage everything. And you can see that, that great talents are not being fully utilized. And that was a mistake I didn't want to make. Okay. Thank you for that. That was really like, I'm taking notes myself, honestly. <laughs> um, that was really insightful. Um, so stepping away from work for a sec, mm. I did some detective work, right? Okay. And I realized that we, 
basically grew up in the same area. So I grew up in South London, in Battersea. Okay. You grew up in Tooton. Yeah. Tooton? Is that yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I, I was there all the time. I went to training in the Tooton Burke Athletics track. That's why I used to train when I thought I was going to be an athlete. Like, wow. So we were literally like in the same worlds. And I was just wondering, for me, growing up in Battersea, I didn't really get a lot of opportunities to... I mean, I didn't know I wanted to act in the first place, but it wasn't on my radar. You know, I wasn't... It wasn't in my, you know, in my world. So I was just wondering if that was how how you found acting, like just growing up in that kind of area and just with your upbringing and everything. Yeah, it, it was it was definitely the same for me. And you know, I'm I'm older than you, Malachi. So even even more so, you know, what what what, and I'm. It's beautiful that it's no longer the case. But when I was a lot younger, growing up in South London, uh, even when we then moved back to Nigeria and then moved back to the UK when I was in my teens and we, we, we lived in North London, the thing that was very, it was, I was gonna say evident to me, it actually wasn't evident, but I felt it subconsciously was a lack of representation of someone who looks like me. So the idea of being an actor wasn't prevalent because I didn't see many examples of what was possible. You know, you mentioned Denzel earlier. For me, similarly, you know, I could look at Denzel, I could look at Sidney Poitier, I could look at Will Smith, I could look at Jamie Foxx, I could look at the, these guys, and, and you know, even Jamie and Will are, are, are a bit younger than, than Denzel, but you know, that was at least sort of an indication of the presence of someone who looked like me, but Hollywood was like like Mars compared to Balam. Do you know what I mean? Or Tutin Beck. Or, you yeah. know, it was like that. That is just not my reality, our reality. So it was just so far away as a thought. I didn't have the thought, even though I loved movies, I loved television, but you know, I did youth theater and things like that. But I did it because I loved it, I, it never felt like something I could do as a proper job. And it wasn't until I had a theater studies teacher when I was doing my A-levels who really encouraged me and said, look, I think, I think this is something you should consider as a profession. I think you should consider drama school. I didn't even know what drama school was. I didn't know you go to a school for acting, yeah. you know? Um, so she really opened my eyes up to, to those possibilities. But even then at drama school, you know, you had David Harewood, you had Adrian Lester, you had Paxton Joseph, you had Eamon Walker. But I'll be honest, you know, as much as I admired those guys, I didn't feel like they were being given opportunities that were um, equal to the talent I saw in them. And so it was still nerve wracking for me. I was like, <sighs> man, I don't want to prove my dad right, you know, who he was so against me being an actor because, mm -hmm. again, he didn't see any examples of success. He was worried for me. Um, and so I was pretty determined that I would try and be part of a push to create a world that I wasn't seeing. So... When I went to drama school and I left drama school, I, I had read an article again um, about our friend Denzel. And he had said in this article that early on in his career, he said, 
to his agent, send me all the scripts Harrison Ford is turning down. And I thought, wow, that, that, that's interesting. Because when I would watch his performances, they transcended his race. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading that in an, in an article. And I, and I said to agents who were looking to maybe sign me, I said, I want you to send me up for, I was trying to beat Denzel. <laughs> I, 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 send, send me up for the roles that white actors are going up for. Malachi, I had agents who laughed at me in my face about that. Said, but they stipulate. They always say what they want. You know, that, that's not how it works. And I knew in the core of my being that, at that point in our industry, if I'd only been going up for race-specific roles, I would stay in a certain sandbox. And so I found a great agent, um, Christian Hedell, at Hamilton Hedell, who believed in my philosophy. And, you know, I think if you have a vision for your life and you work hard towards it, that thing starts to come close to you as you start to come close to it. And so one of the first major roles for me was playing Henry VI at the Royal Shakespeare Company, which was the epitome of a non-race specific role. In fact, you know, I got a lot of stick for playing a a character that people said a black person shouldn't play. and then similarly with Spooks, it was a role that, that, you know, when I played Danny Hunter in that, it was a role that was written for a white actor, but, you know, I went in, fought hard to get the role. And it worked for me because at that point, and I would say still now, there was just more dimension to these roles that were being written without race as a preoccupation in relation to the character. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's primarily because black writers, black directors, black producers were not prevalent. So the, the, the truth of our perspective as people was not working its way onto the page. It was always an outside view of who we were. So to play something three-dimensional, to play a human being, you kind of needed to find roles that were written for white actors so that you could be fully human. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was kind of what my early career was built on, that philosophy. So to go back to your original question, that was my trajectory, not seeing myself represented, deciding, well, finding someone who believed in me for who I am, and then taking that belief and trying to reshape what I was seeing um, played out in front of me, which is stereotypical, caricature, marginalized, peripheral characters And how can I be the center of the narrative in a way that feels truthful to who I actually am and who a global audience can relate to? Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow, that's a lot. Um, (laughs) No, this is amazing. Um, I'm I'm geeking out. Okay. Um, I have another question. Um, In terms of your faith, right? 
So we're both in Christ. And I know for me, like, it's definitely something that I've come up against a lot in terms of that question of can I be both a Christian and an artist and an actor, you know, or does one have to suffer more than the other? And I just wondered how that is for you in your journey and with your faith, like, if you feel like you can be both entirely a Christian and an actor, or does one have to supersede the other for you? It's actually helped me immensely um, because it turns out God has really good taste. Um, you know, the, the, the things I gravitate towards, are they, they have dimension to them. They have a moral compass to them. But because as a Christian, I'm very aware that the Bible is an R-rated book, I'm not someone who shies away from darkness because of my faith. Mm -hmm. My preoccupation is just to make sure that darkness is not glamorized or platformed as the way to go. So, you know, I think as a storyteller, our job is to show the the complexity, the depth, the plethora of humanity. I think we go to the movies and watch TV to see ourselves reflected back to us, to be educated, to be entertained, to have insight. Um, you know, Jesus did that, I would argue, better than anyone in terms of, you know, he wasn't hanging around with the religious establishment. He actually right. berated the religious establishment right. a lot. He was hanging right. out with the prostitutes and the tax collectors and yep. the fishermen and the, and the rich people who had no faith. And he was trying to uh, relate to them, understand them, give them the bread of life. And, you know, one of the things I love about the Bible is how it uses story. Like Jesus was an amazing storyteller. You know, the yeah. parables are all just phenomenal stories and yeah. he would tell them. And so for me, um, it's, been a, it's been a great source of inspiration as to, you know, you look at the Bible and it's full of rape and destruction and despots and war, and but it's also full of love and self-sacrifice and light and transcendent human behavior. I mean, what else do you want in a story? You want both. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, for me, it, it, it has been immense as a storyteller, but also as a father, as a husband, um, it, it has been huge because I think one of, the, one of the occupational hazards of being an actor is self-obsession. You know, you are constantly thinking about yourself, looking at yourself, listening to what people are saying about you and your performances and the reviews and where am I, am I hot right now? Am I not right now? You know, all this stuff, you, me, 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 me. And I think the, 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 the danger is that you forget that the best acting, the best storytelling is an act of service. Mm -hmm. Serve the script, serve the, act, the audience, serve your fellow actors. Mm -hmm. If you are doing that, you're going to be a really good actor. You're going to be a really good storyteller because... It is, it is an overflow rather than sort of being insular and, and, and sort of a black hole. Mm -hmm. 
that's something that's very, very Christocentric. Um, and so my life is built on the rock that is Jesus Christ um, for, for me. And it immediately means that I am able to think beyond myself. I don't get it right every day. Trust me, I'm as vain as the next person. But I, it just gives me these checks and balances. And it, it, it enables me to build my life on something that isn't sand. You know, our industry is sand. You can be hot today and you will be canceled tomorrow. And it will yeah. happen that quickly. Yeah. Um, but if you have built your personhood on this, it, it, it's, that's why we see such devastating um, consequences in marriages, in addiction, in you, you know mental health, in relation to our business, and so you know I think I think my my faith has really helped me navigate that as a man and um, and as an artist. Beautiful, thank you. Um, coming off of that, um, how many kids do you have? Uh, we have four. Four kids. Cool. Yeah. So you are a father of four kids. Mm -hmm. You're a husband to one wife. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you have, I checked your IMDb, you're very busy, um, not just acting, but producing and directing. I don't know if you write as well. Wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> but <laughs> there you go. Um, how do you balance all of that happening at the same time? Yeah, it's a challenge for sure. Um, and, uh, you know, what we have found, my wife and I, is you need to have non-negotiables. Mm -hmm. So my wife is here with me at the moment. Uh, we've been married 22 years and we have something called a two-week rule. We're never apart for more than two weeks. We've never been apart for more than two weeks since we got married. And that is logistically really tough when you're, you know, working all over the world. I'm in London right now. Our home is in L.A. Um, but having those non-negotiables is just a way to practically and literally and philosophically make sure that the center of your life are your key relationships. So it is God, it is my family, and yes, my profession is very important to me, but it's, it is a byproduct of the well-being of my family. And so if, if, Jess and I, my wife, are getting those things right. What we are able to do is constantly communicate about where we carve out the time to be able to do the thing we love without the thing that is prioritous to us suffering. We don't get it right every day, for sure. But it's, it's funny, the, the less time you have, sometimes the more effective you are with that time. If you just have infinite time, I mean, maybe people have experienced this during the lockdown. If you just have days and days with no real demarcation or compartmentalization, you can burn six hours just staring out the window easily. Yeah. But when you know that you have two precious hours because the kids are going to be out of school. One of them has got to be picked up. The dog needs walking. You got to get you, those. You are, you become very efficient with time. 
you know, I, I think there's a, there's a saying, you know, get, you want something done, give it to a busy person. And, and, I, and I have found that to be mm. true because you are, you, are, you are in a zone of like, okay, I've, I've, I've got to get it, I've got to get it done. And that's very much been our lives. So, you know, but I don't do it alone. You know, at our company, we, my wife and I have assistants who are brilliant um, um, with, with, with what they do. Um, my wife writes as well. She's also an, an actress. So, you know, we have to talk about how we compartmentalize time. And our kids have grown up in the industry. So they understand what mommy and daddy do, that the hours are a bit weird. And so they've sort of fallen into line and they're now, they're now entering into our business. You know, my, our, okay. our eldest son is a music producer. He actually did the end credit song for The Waterman. Um, he produced that track and my wife sings on it. Jess is in the film as well. Um, and so it's, it's becoming a bit of a family affair. So that, that helps also. Okay. Amazing. Mm. Amazing. Um, coming back to something we were speaking about earlier in terms of growing up and as much as you are definitely older than me, I think I'm pretty sure I look older than you. <laughs> I don't know how you do it. Um, <laughs> I don't know it's how that beer. works. But, beer, that's um, it. Yeah. Okay, you're being kind. Thank you. <laughs> um, but in terms of like acknowledging that, um, even in the short, I've been acting about 12 years now. And in that short space of time, I've seen changes in the industry, um, just in the world in general, actually. But I was just interested to know um, what are the most significant changes that you've seen in terms of the the industry, the acting industry. Well, it's it's. Uh, I, I will say, you know, it's really amazing for me to come back to the UK and see films, TV shows, programs of plays where there are all these beautiful African names. Like, yeah. like, like, you know, myself and Chiwetel were it. That was it. I mean, when I was, I mean, Danny Sapani, you know, it was, it was thin on the ground. And so culturally, as, as people from, from, of, of African descent, um, there were very, very few examples of people of African descent in our industry um, to, to look to as an example, as an inspiration, as a test case to your parents who are saying, what are you, what are you talking about? Going to be yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so, so exactly. So it, it was, that is, huge, a yeah. huge difference. And that makes me so proud, so happy. And, you know, not just uh, 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 folks of African descent, but, you know, to see you thriving. I mean, I, I, I wrote to you about seeing you in Small Acts and your, and your episode of that mangrove and, and just seeing you front and center, seeing Letitia Wright front and center in that way. And that just wasn't happening. You know, you had to you had to be deep into your 30s and 40s to even be getting like any kind of visibility. You had to have been grinding for two decades, pretty much, to just be squeezing into 
any kind of prominence on screen. And so that is a really beautiful thing to see because, you know, what I love about what's happening with your career is that already, you know, even I, I loved seeing Gone Too Far and, 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 and then, you know, what you were able to do in Roots and then in, in, in Small Acts as well. You are building up a body of work in your early 30s that is substantial, like front and center protagonist roles that, that go from the gamut of American roles to British roles, to, you know, to historical, to contemporary, to period. You know, these are, these are the kind of opportunities that just were not there beyond being tokenistic. Mm-hmm. Like for me being in Spooks, it became like, well, look, you, you got one, be happy. Do you know what I mean? But but to to see you, to see John Boyega, to see Daniel Kaluuya, to see Letitia, to see to see this plethora of actors who indisputably are world class talent, that's a big difference. That's a big shift, um, and it just means that generationally, literally right now there is a 10-year-old, there is a 12-year-old who just watched Malachi Kirby in Mangrove and his world just shifted on its axis um, in terms of what he thinks he can go on to achieve. And I didn't have that. And so that's big. Um, uh, so so that, that's a great change. And then I think globally speaking, you know, it's unfortunate that it takes things like the murder of a black man on screen for over eight minutes for the world to go, okay, time out. We've got to do some real soul searching here. But I would say that George Floyd's murder playing out during a pandemic while we were all being very self-reflective has definitely held society accountable to what it says it wants to be as opposed to what it actually is. And so I definitely see real shifts in terms of perspective when it comes to female directors, black and brown people being given opportunities, organizations being held accountable because what we do, what you and I do for a living is its cultural impact is indisputable and far reaching. You know, what, how we tell stories shapes people's perspective, their worldview, their, their notions of who they are. Um, both in the past, present, and maybe even future. And so to to be able to have you and I have a real voice at the table when it comes to those stories is huge, which is why I do not take for granted the power of getting to direct a film like like The Waterman, because you know, it's a it's a it's a family adventure movie, but I know the effect the Waterman would have had on me if I'd seen that film when I was a 12-year-old kid. Because I, I would see myself in Lonnie Chavis. I would see my family in that family. And I would love to see that my quest to go on an adventure is something worth seeing on the big screen. And so, you know, th- those, are, those are all drops in the ocean that hopefully lead to an ocean whereby, you know, um, the, the world will be different going forward. I do believe that. Amen. Mm. Amen. Um, I think you answered a lot of the questions I was going to ask you, actually, um, which is a good thing. Um, (laughs) (laughs) 
But I think my last question for you at the moment would be in terms of moving forward, in terms of, you know, you mentioned that little kid that is watching some of the stuff that's coming out now and being inspired um, and aspiring to something like that. Do you still have things that you aspire to do that you haven't done yet? Or do you feel like, you know, it's just a case of coasting now, like everything's done and it's just, you know, you're discovering? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I have, you know, I have personal ambitions, you know, I I really want to be able to build up a, the kind of platform that means I don't have to ask anyone permission to make any story I want to make. And I, and I mean, financially, I mean, um, access to audience, I mean access to talent. You know, I have a very real desire to see African storytelling. And I mean, from the African continent, have global reach. I think in a world of prequels, sequels, remakes, you know, where it seems like we're running out of stories, Africa is just such a deep well of stories that we haven't heard yet, characters we haven't seen yet, perspectives we didn't even know exist yet. Um, And to have that married with incredible production value and great budgets and appropriate distribution that goes all over the world, that's something I really want to be a part of. But from a macro point of view, something I want to continue to see and also be a part of, is I don't want to ever talk about race again. You know, I want the validity of you and I um, as, as human beings, as creatives, I want it to be completely normalized. I don't want to know of a diversity officer within a company. I don't want to be asked to be on the board or on a panel about some other, you know, BAME, you know, this, that, or other. That's not the life I lead. I I don't live within the lines or the confines of what I look like in terms of the color of my skin. I'm just a human being who is living a very full life. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't want that to to define me um, in the way our industry does. So the normalization of that, you know, is is a big ambition of mine. Um, I think that would be real change when you and I don't have to acknowledge or talk about um, the improvements um, that our disgracefully um, inept industry um, historically has been. It's getting better, but it has been shocking in the past. But, you know, like I say, it's getting better, but to get to the point whereby that's like an antiquated conversation, wow, that would be great. So, and, and that, that every piece of work I put out into the world is in, in the hope of that in the hope of it becoming so normalized that people are like, yeah, but we've had like 80 of those movies this year. So it's kind of an irrelevant conversation. Um, That would be great. That's something I want to see. Cool. I want to zoom spudgy for that one. Yes. Boom. <laughs> Just created something new there. No, I think um, <laughs> unless there's anything else that you know you particularly want to share, that sounded like a 
weird note to end. I yeah, well, I, I wanted to thank you for doing doing this uh, with with me. I, I asked that it, you know it it be it be you because I'm really proud of you, man. I, I uh, you know I I just um, you know I look at you, I look at your work, I look at the integrity with which you're walking it out, I look at the humility with which you're walking it out. That's the stuff that a long career is built on, you know, because you're not only a great actor, but you're a lovely person. And I think from an example point of view, that's what any and every actor should be looking at. You, this is not owed you. There are a lot of talented people who don't get opportunities, who will never get opportunities. What we do is one of the best jobs in the world. We, bet we get to stay kids for our entire lives and just play. Um, and you, you walk in it with a kind of a grace, with a, with, a, with a kind of a regal, quiet grace that then, you know, you, you are also able to give these fiery performances that, you know, when you get intense on screen, I'm a bit like, Malachi. <laughs> 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 you know, so um, it's it's but that but that is that is indicative of of the depth of your talent. So thank you for doing this. I'm I'm really really proud of you, and I just can't wait to see more from you, man. I I really mean that. No, thank you so much. Honestly, um, I wish that uh, well, it will be a book. I was gonna say I wish you could turn this conversation into a book and I could read it, but we can't. So it's good. <laughs> <laughs> For more interviews and features with some of the most engaging personalities in TV and film, music, sport and culture, go to squaremile.com.